All right, why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible on you this morning, if you throw your hand up, we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. If you don't own a Bible, if you forgot your Bible, if you didn't bring your Bible, grab one of these Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And if you don't own a Bible, for sure grab one of these, take it home as our gift to you. As you're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 7, you know in your car, that, that little red light on the dashboard, the check engine light? Yeah, it comes on, right? To, to me, I'm going to tell you this, something. It, it's not much of a helpful light for me. It, it comes on, check engine. So what do I do? I go, I open the hood and go, engine, check. All right, great. Right, there it is. Uh, it, it's, it's too complicated for me. Like a check engine light. I need something more than that to be able to know what's going on. I need like the parts in my engine to each have their own lights to, to go, hey, Kai, buddy, over here. I'm the broken part. Come fix me. I'm the one who needs help. Right? Just one light doesn't do it for me. And, and here's the thing. Our hearts, our hearts are even more complicated complicated than a car engine. Complicated for us to figure out, man, how, how do I take care of my heart when, when something's not right? When the check engine light, when the check heart light comes on. When we, we start to feel, we know, man, man, there's something going on and there's something not right in my heart. When discouragement comes, when I'm drifting into sin, when I'm, when I'm drifting into pride, when I'm quick to anger, when I'm slow to forgive, when, when I'm anxious, when, when I'm apathetic about the Lord and, and these dashboard lights of our heart come on and they say, hey, something's not right. Something's not right in your heart. And it's hard for us to figure that out, but, but those, those warning lights are an opportunity for us to, to go to the Holy Spirit, to go to the one who knows our hearts. For the Holy Spirit to be able to press in our hearts and go, hey, here's the part of your heart. Here's the area in your heart where you're not being ruled by Jesus, where something else is a king in your heart. I love how Jesus says in John 14, Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I'm like, well, how do I do that, Jesus? How, how do I not let my heart be troubled? He goes on in John 14. He says, here's how you do it. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In other words, Jesus says, when that red light comes on, when the dashboard light in your heart comes on, he says, hey, don't put your hope in what you see. Don't, don't put your faith in what you see. Don't let your heart be ruled by the kings you see around you. Let your heart be ruled by me and my promises. When Jesus is saying this, he's saying, I'm the king. Don't, don't let any lesser kings have rule over your heart. And, and when you see these kings taking up rule in your heart, when, when you start to set up your own little kingdoms in your heart, it, it's not time to go, well, everything's okay. I'll just keep going along like normal. No, no, no. The check engine light is on in your heart. You got to take that to a mechanic. You got to pull your heart over. You got to go to the Holy Spirit and say, hey, what's going on in my heart? And we go after the promises of the king. We begin to put our hope in those promises so that our heart's not ruled by what we see, but our hearts are ruled by what the king decrees, by what Jesus promises. This morning, what king rules your heart? Because your heart, my heart, will always bow down to a king. The question is, what king are we bowing down to? If you're taking notes this morning, here's our first point this morning as we jump into 2 Samuel. Every kingdom needs a king. Every kingdom needs a king. We're continuing on in this series called The Kingdom. We're tracing the story of the kingdom throughout Scripture. And here, here's our first point for this morning. If we're talking about a kingdom, every kingdom needs a king. 
Before we jump into the word this morning, let me call out to our king. Let's just pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning. Lord God, I recognize that apart from your Holy Spirit, apart from your Holy Spirit doing a work in our hearts, Lord, we're just all gathered here just, just trying to figure things out. Lord, I, I'd just be a guy up here giving advice, just talking from a book. But God, we know that this isn't just a, a normal book, that, that, that Lord God, this is your word. And that we believe that your Holy Spirit is here in this place. And so as, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts. Lord God, that you would, you would reveal clearly your promises to us that you're powerful, that you transform us, that you are the king. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here we come to 2 Samuel. We're going to be reading about this guy named King David. And it doesn't take much to read through the Old Testament and read through the New Testament to realize that this David guy is a bit of a big deal. I mean, you track the story of the kingdom through scriptures, and it makes sense because a kingdom needs a king. And, and remember, we, we said that, that God created the, the world. He creates the Garden of Eden. It's this, this perfect place. Sin enters into that space, and it, it wrecks the peace of that kingdom. But in the midst of that, there was this promise that God has given that, that no, no, a king is coming to restore the kingdom. In fact, look, look at verse 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 9 says, and, he, and this, is, this is God talking to, to David. He says, I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off your enemies before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. Now, now if you're tracking with the story of the kingdom and you've been, you've been following along in this sermon series, that, that line there should make you go, wait a minute, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. Remember, God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12 that he said, I'll make your name great. And here God continues the promise with David. Look, look at verse 10. He goes on. He says, and I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and, and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. I mean, that sounds familiar too. God, God promised Abraham not just a, a name, but also a place that he would give him a land. Look at verse 12. God goes on. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now again, it's you go, wait, that sounds so familiar because God in Genesis 17 promised Abraham, I'll raise up an offspring. It's the exact same word. He says, and, and kings will come from you, Abraham. And now here's David and God's speaking to this king that's now come finally, and he's saying, I'm going to establish a kingdom with another king coming from you. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, and who is like your people, Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeem for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you establish for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. So David's now speaking to God saying, man, you redeemed us. And, and here's a, a word that goes, man, I should, that, that word sounds familiar. God said to Moses, I'm going to redeem you. 
I'm going to redeem a people for myself who are captives right now, slaves, but I'm saving, I'm redeeming you. I mean, this isn't just a bunch of books crammed together in another big book. This is one story that God is telling, laying out, using different authors at different times, but one kingdom story that God's writing in history. A story that speaks over our life story, to give our life story purpose and meaning. A kingdom needs a king, and so we have this guy named David. And let's go back to verse one of chapter seven, because we're gonna see that David was a really good king. Verse one says this, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Now, what's going on here? David's in this place of prosperity. Israel's doing so well right now. So Joshua had conquered the land. The Israelites went through this time of being ruled by judges. They were sort of like kings that God appointed for his people. And they would come in when things were in trouble in Israel. Things would be going great for them. They would be doing so well, and they got so comfortable. I mean, life was good, hashtag blessed, like they were doing so great, right? And what would happen, every time they would tweet out hashtag blessed, they would forget God. I kind of think of it this way. It's a bit like a headwind and a tailwind. If you ever bike or walk or run in wind, and you're against this headwind, you're always feeling it. You're always against it. You know it's there. But when you turn and there's a tailwind, you might feel it and remember it for a little bit. Like, oh, that's so much better. But after a while, you forget the tailwind's there. It's sort of like what was going on here with these people. When the wind's at their back, when the wind's at our back, we forget the goodness and the grace of God. We stop being thankful. We start to think that we're pretty awesome. We, we presume on God's goodness. And here are the, the Israelites before David, that they, they, they would get in this place of blessing. They, they would forget that all they have is from God. They'd forget him and they would start to pursue apathy and sin and Eventually, that sin would catch up with them, and, and then in, in the midst of the headwind of sin, they'd now start to call out to God, and God's grace was seen because he wouldn't just let them live in their sin. He would bring trouble that comes, consequences that come. Surrounding nations would attack Israel. They'd feel the oppression. They'd remember their sin. They'd remember God again. They would call out to him, and God would send a judge. And the people would repent, blessing would come, and the cycle would start all over again. So, so before David came, for years, this is what it was like. And they would just be constantly being oppressed by these surrounding nations like the Philistines and the Midianites. But then David comes as this great king. He's their second king after Saul, and, and he has this amazing military success. So now David looks around now at this time here, and he's going, life is good. Politically, it's good economically, it's good. Things were looking so good for Israel as a nation. And because Israel's doing good and David's the king, David's also doing good. He's saying, here I am in this phenomenal house. In some translations, it says he had, he had great wood paneling, which I think is pretty weird. Because, I mean, growing up in the 70s, I think wood paneling, like David had a killer rec room with shag carpet and wood paneling. Remember that stuff, right? That's not what this wood paneling is, right? This is this, this cedar wood paneling. It was, it was expensive. It was beautiful. It smelled great. And David's in this place of living in this great, beautiful home. And so he calls Nathan the prophet and he goes, hey, it's not right. I should be living in this beautiful place. Well, God, he, 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 like we're still worshiping him in a tent. 
Like that was fine when we were wandering through the, through the wilderness, but, but we're not just nomadic people any longer. God, God's, God's temple shouldn't be this moldy old tent. I want to build God a house. I want to build God a temple. Now, now, what did Nathan do? Now, think about it. Think about it. Nathan, the prophet, super wealthy guy, comes to the pastor and says, you know, it's just, it's not good that we're meeting in a cafeteria in a high school. I want to build a really big, beautiful church. Like, what, what's Nathan going to do, right? That sounds like a perfect idea, actually. And so verse three, what's Nathan say? Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. He's like, that is a great plan. But then look at verse four. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of, e- of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God's like, I, 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 don't, I don't need a house. I, David, I don't want you to build me a house. I, I don't want a temple. Which seems weird, right? You're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. If this is a kingdom and if God's the king, doesn't every king need a castle? Why would God say no? But you can see clearly here in this text why God says, no, David, I don't want you to build me one. The title of this sermon is that, called The Almost King. David's a great king, but he's the almost king. He's not the ultimate king. I mean, God told the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt and they were about to enter the promised land, he said, hey, when you guys get into the promised land, you're going to want a king. Like all the other nations, you're going to want a king. But here's the thing. You, you can have a king, but the whole design of this earthly king needs to be so that that king points to me as your ultimate king. That king needs to represent me. That king needs to live a life that points you to me, following me, leading you to follow me as your king because ultimately God would say, I'm your king. So, so David's he's not the real king. I mean, in the grand story that we're tracing through scripture of the kingdom, David's pointing us to the real king. You, you, you see, when you read about David, he only makes sense when you see Jesus through him. When you see, man, he's pointing to a better king that's coming. David was a great picture of the real king to come. David was, a, was anointed as a king, but, but like Jesus, he wasn't someone who looked like a king when he was first introduced. If you know the story, Samuel goes, because God says, hey, go to Jesse's house. Jesse's got a son, and he's going to be the king. So, so he goes to, to Jesse's house, and he sees Jesse's sons, and Jesse has like this, this, this array of awesome dudes. He just has great sons, and and he immediately sees the oldest son. He's, he's tall, he's strong. He, I mean, this guy, he had the sports scholarships to the best schools. He, he, just, he, just, he just had this king look about him. And, and, and God says, no, that's not the one. Really, that, that, that's not him? Jesse, Jesse, get all your boys out here. So all the boys lined up. And it would have been like, 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 like the bachelorette. Like these guys were all, like, just, they were just great. But none of them gets the rose. None of them. Not one of them gets it, right? I think that's how it goes. You get the rose to be in or out. I can't, I don't know. I've never seen the show. I just heard. Anyway, right? <laughs> and so he says to Jesse, yeah, none of these guys are the king. You have no more sons? And Jesse's like, well, yeah, I got one more son, but there's no way he's the one you're looking for. He's just a young shepherd. I mean, he's not as tall and strong as these guys. I mean, if you're looking for a military leader, I mean, he writes poetry and plays a harp. 
Are you sure that's, he wears skinny jeans and scarves in the summer. Like I don't, he's, he's not the guy, right? And God says, yeah, that's the one. God chose the meek, the lowly, the humble, someone who didn't look like what Israel would have expected to be the king. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? It should point us to Jesus, the real king. And God says to David, the almost king, he says, you can't build me a temple. Why? Here's our second point this morning. Because Jesus is the real king. Because Jesus is the real king. And he says, hey, hey, David, I don't need you to build me a house. I, I don't live in a house. I, I, where, where does he say he lives? He goes, I was with you, he says. I've not lived in a house, verse six says, since the day I brought the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. Verse seven, in all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? He said, listen, listen, I'm not that kind of king. I'm not that kind of God. He goes, I'm the kind of God who is with you. Just a king is coming in Jesus. You'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. God says, when my people are poor, I'm poor with them. As my people suffer, I suffer with my people. He's such a different king. He says, I live with my people. I, I love you so much. I'm not interested in staying as a distant king. No, I'm coming right alongside you. And God, right here in 2 Samuel, before Jesus shows up on the scene as God the Son, he, he's saying, here's clearly who I am. Here's what my heart looks like. I mean, it, and it can be so hard for us to get our heads wrapped around, can't it? I mean, if you really think about it, the king of the universe, the creator of everything we see, this holy, almighty creator God says, I'm with you. I love you. I'll walk beside you. I mean, how does that work? How can a holy, almighty God do this? Well, look at verse eight, we get a hint. It says, now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. He's saying, David, David, tell David it's all grace. The only way this happens is all grace. It's, it's not about what, what you can do for me, David. It's about I gave everything for you. And, and God starts writing the story of the kingdom and says, my story of the kingdom is different from the story the world speaks. The, the world speaks a whole different story over us, doesn't it? The world speaks a story of performance. Man, you've got to live up to a standard. Where you, where you can begin to say, okay, I'm a good person now. I, I, I feel significant. I, I feel like I have worth because, because I, I'm achieving something. And, and this narrative speaks over our lives on a constant basis. It, it happens in our churches. It happens in the world where we hear this, this, man, I have to do so much if I'm gonna be accepted, if I'm gonna be worthy. So what do we do? We strive harder and harder to be, to be better people, more, more, more loving, more hardworking. And then the king of grace steps in and speaks a whole different word, tells a whole different story. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're a sinner. 
You can't perform. You, you can't make it work. You, you, you can't even live up to your own standards. Forget about God's holy, perfect standards. Your performance can't be your king. That's a, a horrible king to try to serve. In the kingdom of grace, we have to see clearly that we can't make it. That Jesus came in weakness and died on the cross. And he says, my kingdom is for those who realize I can't do this in and of myself. So we admit that we're hopeless and weak and desperately need mercy. We need rescue. We need grace. Grace, the, the undeserved, unmerited favor and acceptance from God. Not, not dependent on any of our goodness, any of our effort, any of our accomplishment. It's this undeserved, unending, unexplainable, unwavering, unexhaustible love of God to those who don't deserve it. Us. To, to those who are estranged and enemies of his. And, and that grace pierces our deepest shame. It covers our abandonment and our fear to declare God saying to us this morning, saying to you, listen, I know all about you. I know everything, all the darkest secrets. I know it all, and I'm crazy about you, and I'm not going to leave you. And nothing you can do as my child, God would say, can take my love away. I mean, God's saying to David, David, remember, remember who you were. You were the scrawny little shepherd boy, this, this little kid who looked after your dad's sheep until I found you. David, you don't have to do a work for me. You're not building me a house. It's only through me you do anything. Everything we do is by God's grace. Here's what makes grace so good. Here's, here's what's so great about that idea that it's all through God's grace. First of all, it's this. We can have such confidence as Christ followers. I mean, if Christ is your king, if you're a Christ follower, you can accomplish all that God has for you to accomplish. Why? Because you have his grace. You have his Holy Spirit. You have his power over you. You're a child of the king. We can have confidence. We can boldly say, I'm a child of the king. Here's the second thing it means, though. We have confidence, but we're also so humbled. I mean, grace just humbles us. No one who's a Christ follower can ever stand up and say, check me out, right? I am pretty awesome. Grace is so incredibly humbling that we recognize that everything we have is because of God's grace. I mean, to have pride as a Christian is so goofy. It doesn't make sense. If, if you're a Christ follower and you understand grace, to have pride in the midst of that, it's like this. Just, just this last week, I was at a pastor's conference in Phoenix, so brought my kids, stayed a little longer, and we went to the Grand Canyon. To have pride as a Christian, it'd be to stand at the Grand Canyon. We're, we're trying to get pictures of us at the Grand Canyon, so we're doing the whole selfie thing, right? But you can't get it far enough away, right? So every time we're trying to picture, it's just us. I'm like, that's lame. There's this Grand Canyon behind us. How dumb would it be to come back and go, hey, look at the pictures of us at the Grand Canyon. That, that's pride and as a Christian, where we stand up and go, look at me, when behind us is the incredible, amazing, unbelievable grace of God. How could we ever, how could a Christian ever walk with swagger? It doesn't make sense. I mean, God's grace reminds us that, that, that in the hospital he calls church, all of us are patients. Only Jesus heals. And, and so, so grace gives us this humble confidence that, that, that I'm more sinful than I'd ever admit. That, that's, that's humbling. 
but I'm also more loved than I could ever imagine through Christ. That gives us confidence. So God's saying to, to David here, hey, David, be careful in your desire to build me a temple. It, it sounds like you're trying to make a name for yourself because in that culture, in that time in history, what would happen is if you were a powerful, successful king, you would build. This is what they all did. They would build these huge temples. And then they would build them up. Why? Because as they built this temple, people would look in and go, oh, wow, you must be a great king because God has blessed you. It's proof that God had chosen you and blessed you. It's a way to say, look how awesome I am. But God turns this whole thing upside down. He goes, listen, I don't operate that way, David. I'm a king of grace. Every other religion operates like, like, like those, those kings of ancient times. You do good works and God blesses. You build something, God blesses you. You give to God, then God gives to you. And God says, that's now not how I'm your king. I'm a different kind of king. I'm a king of grace. You don't build me a house. I take you broken, messed up, unknown, lost, undeserving, and I build you a house. I give you a kingdom. Here's the thing. I think we can be so immersed in grace and the gospel, we forget how amazing it is. I think if you're in a place where you hear the gospel a lot, you hear grace a lot, we can become a little bit like that, the spoiled rich kid, Right? who's driving a car that he didn't pay for, who's playing with a speedboat he didn't save up for, who's, who's going to school that he put no money towards, right? And that, that spoiled, we all know that spoiled rich kid who's just like, look what I got. You didn't, do, you didn't get any of it. I think so often we can become these spoiled grace punks and we assume so much and we forget the amazing of amazing grace. I mean, think about it, Christian, Christian, Christ follower. God in Christ loves you with this unstoppable love. You're forgiven, you're clean, you're transformed, you're accepted because of what Christ did on the cross for you. That should never cease to amaze us. In fact, look at God's promises here, verse nine. He says, I've been with you wherever you went, cut off all your enemies before you. I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your Body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Goes on, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. He says, My kingdom will last even when there's sin. And your, verse 16, and your, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. I mean, think about how incredible those promises are. He says, I'm giving you this, not because of your merit, not because of your pedigree, but graciously, unconditionally, I'm giving myself to you. This promise, even in your death, it won't be taken away. 
Even your sin won't break my commitment to you. I mean, how does that work? How does God promise this, that even in sin, even for us sinful, broken people, the promise still lasts? I mean, if you're, you're stopping in 2 Samuel 7, you can think, yeah, but David's a pretty good king. Maybe that's why he gave David this promise. But, but just a few chapters later, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, you read about David's sin with Bathsheba. He sees this woman bathing, and he's like, I want her. And because he's a powerful king, he could take what he wants. So he, he takes her, has his way with her. She gets pregnant. Now he's like, now what do I do? So he kills her husband so he can have her. I mean, David, not a great guy at that moment. So how can God love us? I mean, we have to pull back this whole story of, of the kingdom and see the whole picture that, that, that when sin entered the world in, in the Garden of Eden through our choice, because we wanted to be our own king, everything falls apart. So, so in our world, we have war and racism and murder and hatred and sickness and, and fear and anxiety and unhappiness and death. Everything falls apart because of sin. But in the midst of that failure, there was a promise echoed all throughout the Old Testament promise of a coming king, a true king that'll bring peace and restoration, a, a king that'll come to bring order again, Jesus coming to bring an eternal kingdom. In fact, I love it when Matthew opens up his book, he begins with this, Jesus, son of David. It's God revealing, hey, hey, here's my promise fulfilled. This is the whole picture here, the promise coming that, that Jesus now has come and he, he lives the perfect life that you and I were supposed to live, but we couldn't live. He dies the death that we should have died to pay for our sin. He rises again. And what, he, what does he do? He literally overcomes death. Promise fulfilled. He overcomes sin and pays the debt we owed to justice. So, so he, here's how we're going to end this morning. What does all this practically mean? Like, well, what does this mean for me today, right now, as I go about my life? Just a few things. Before I get to that, here, here's one thing it means. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus. If Jesus isn't your king, I hope you hear this. There's nothing that you need to bring. There's nothing in your past or in your present right now that will stop you from, from being able to receive the grace of God because it has nothing to do with you. That we come just hands open going, Lord, I have nothing. That's how Christ becomes your king. When you come to that place of humbly saying, I have nothing to give, but I'm in desperate need of you. In that moment, Christ becomes your king and all the promises are true in Christ Jesus for you. I mean, that could be you this morning. Here's what it means for, for those who Christ is your king. Here's the first thing it means, that there's, there's hope for the world. If Christ is king, there's hope for the world. So, so, so for sure, there's this idea of we submit to Christ personally as our personal king, but, but we also recognize that Jesus came not just to save individuals, he came to save a people, to redeem his chosen people, so that Jesus as king is actually the hope for the world. It, it's bigger than just our little individual private thing. We want to see the kingdom lived out here in our church. Not just, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, he forgives me, then I go to heaven. That's so great. No, that is great, but that's not the whole story. There's a bigger part to all of us here together that Christ has called us as our king, saying, listen, listen, the world's broken, but my kingdom is here now. You go out and establish my kingdom. 
We now live out this new kingdom life. We, we jump in on seeing our families transformed. We jump in to see our communities transformed. It, it, it gives us an eternal purpose to live out our lives, reaching out to serve. The, the, that if you're a Christ follower, you're like, man, man, I have the hope of the world in me, so I can serve the poor, I can come alongside the broken, I can feed the hungry, I, I'm called to care for the neglected. Why? Because Jesus didn't just call us as individuals, he called us together to transform our world because he's the king. And, and kings bring justice, kings bring peace. So what do we do then as a church? Listen, Harvest, Harvest, what do we do? We don't sit back. We give our lives to advance this kingdom and here in Muskoka, in Perry Sound, across our communities and to every nation and tribe and language, telling them that the king has come. It's why we do what we do. Why would we serve? Why would we sacrifice? Why would we give away? I mean, for, for, here's my prayer for us as a church, that this is how we would live our lives, that, that, that people seeing this church would not see you and me, they would see the gospel. They would see God's grace. That, that when they hear you talk, when they come to your small group, when, when, when they see your family interact, when they see your, your marriage, when they see you at school, when they see you in your workplace, that, that they would see the gospel being lived out, the hope for the world. That's the first implication. Here's the second one. There's hope for the world. The second is this. I will obey King Jesus. If, if Jesus is the king of our kingdom, then the implication is that I'll obey King Jesus. I'll do what he says unconditionally. I'll, I'll submit my lives to him as king. And I mean, here's where the rubber meets the road in this. The question is this, who do you serve? I mean, do you come to Jesus with empty hands saying, you're the king. You saved me, so I'm yours completely. All of me is yours. I mean, how often do I, do I not come that way? But, but I come to Jesus as the king, and I got a bunch of other kings with me. I'm like, hey, hey Jesus, like, yeah, 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 you're the king, but, but every once in a while, could you get off the throne because this king needs access to it? Right? It becomes this negotiation. Like, like you, can, you can sometimes be the king, but, but these kings have to rule as well because I also, I, I want happiness and I want wealth and, and I, I, I don't know what your king is. Maybe, maybe I want to be married. I, I want comfort. I want... That's not obedience. That, that, that's not submitting to a king's rule. And, and what's happening is we're still actually on the throne. We're still holding on to our life. And the reality is you and I are either on the throne or some other king we've set up is on the throne or Jesus is on the throne. They both can't be on the throne together. It's one or the other. It can't be both. To, to have Jesus as king means there are no other kings in my heart. And that can be so hard. Because those other kings that set up rules in our kingdom of our hearts, I mean, they scream out, serve me or die. I mean, do you feel that at times, right? When your little king's being challenged? Maybe it's comfort, maybe it's power, maybe, it, maybe it's control, maybe it's your image, maybe it's recognition, maybe it's health, maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's fear and anxiety. When, when those lesser kings are challenged, when, when comfort's removed, when your bank account depletes, when, when, when you start to lose a bit of control, when that addiction presses in, 
When, when Jesus says, leave those kings behind, it does feel like we're dying. It's what makes sanctification so hard at times because, because we have to fire those other kings and firing them, getting them off the throne is never easy because they say, serve me or die. But then God steps in. God steps in and says, listen, listen. I died for you so you can serve me. I loved you first. I, I humbled myself to rescue you so that, so that when we come to Christ as king, when we have to obey Christ as king, it always comes from that place of his promises. Every, every, every command in scripture comes out of a promise of scripture. A promise of who you are in Christ. A promise of who you become because Christ is your king. I, I, here's just one example. Romans 6, 12 to 14 says this. There's this promise. It says, you're no longer under the law. You're no longer under the law, but you're under grace. You've been brought from death to life. That's a promise. You've been brought from death to life. It says, therefore, here comes the command, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Well, how do I not let sin reign in my mortal body? It comes out of the promise. Wait a minute, sin doesn't reign in my mortal body. Sin isn't my king anymore. I've been rescued from that. So I can fight. All over the New Testament, you see this. We're called to live out of the promise of who we are in Christ, of what's already been accomplished in the gospel. Here's our, our last thing this morning. Here's the last implication of Christ as king. I can trust King Jesus. I can trust King Jesus. And we started this morning with Jesus' words, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus says, believe in me. Trust me. Trust my promises. I mean, fear and worry come from a place where we're still on the throne. When we're acting like king, where we say, hey, hey, God, like I got these plans and I, I know how they're supposed to, to play out and, and here's how it's supposed to be because I know the future and I know, and God, you better get on my game plan here. You better not let this happen or, or that happen. You better make sure it happens this way. And, and what happens is we get frozen in that space of worry and fear. Why? Because we're trying to be the king and we can't do it. And Jesus says, no, get off the throne. Trust me. Even if things don't work out the way we want, David wanted to build God a temple. God says, no, no, but trust me, David. Trust me. It's gonna be disappointing, but just trust me because what I have for you is so much better. Again, again, here's what we're saying. Don't let your heart be ruled by what you see. Let it be ruled by what Jesus promises you. Let the grand story of the kingdom of God be the story over your heart and over your life. So as, as the worship team comes up, remember this. Remember this, as we end off this morning, God's building an eternal kingdom. A kingdom that'll last forever. The question this morning is this, are you a part of that kingdom? I mean, God told David, there's only one kingdom that will last. It's the kingdom I built for you. I mean, give enough time, your body's gonna fail. Give enough time, your businesses will fail, your money will fail, your family will fail, everything will pass away, including us. Jesus is the only thing that lasts forever. And he says, I want you to be part of my kingdom. I, I want you to help me build this kingdom. And it, here's what's crazy. Jesus doesn't actually need us, but he says, I want you to be a part of this. I, I want your life to have eternal value. I want you to be part of my kingdom. 
Jesus, I died to make you a part of this. That's the awesome invitation we have this morning. But we have to let Jesus be king. So my question this morning is this, who's the king of your life? Jesus is the king. We need to place our heart in that truth and, and live out that truth and be changed by that truth. Would you stand with me as I pray? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you're not just simply a savior born in a manger, but you are the king. You are the one eternal king. You're the one who's gonna put everything right. And Lord Jesus, that changes everything. That gives us hope. That makes us servants. That, that humbles us into obedience, that, that, that fills us with this comfort of trust in you. Lord God, this morning, I pray that you would infuse us, you would fill us with the joy because Jesus, you are king. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's sing together.